Hey, good morning. It's great to be with you today and to be able to have the opportunity to share God's Word with you. And uh, we're in a series, and we've been in a series for the past couple of weeks called Firm Foundations. And uh, as a church is established on a firm foundation, we seek to be a church that is on fire for Jesus Christ. That's our heart's desire. And we've been looking over the past couple of weeks at a number of key underpinnings, we could call it, or practices that we need to commit to that will allow us to be the kind of a church where we are making much of Jesus Christ and that he desires us to be. We've already looked at, a number of weeks ago, unapologetic preaching, preaching the authority of God's word without apology. Then we considered unashamed adoration, lifting high the name of Jesus Christ in worship. Last week, we looked at unceasing prayer, believing firmly in the power of prayer. Today, we're going to be looking at another practice, another foundation, another underpinning to which God is calling all of us to, calling this church to, and that is our unafraid witness, where we're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ boldly, courageously, and lovingly with other people. So how do we do that? So how do we go about sharing boldly of our faith? Well, today we're going to understand how to do that as we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Quite a few verses to work our way through. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. But before we look at the passages of Scripture, I need to set the context for this uh, portion that we're going to look at this morning. Um, Just before Jesus was crucified, he said to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 7, he said, it is to your advantage, he's telling this to, the, to his disciples, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then after his resurrection, just before Jesus was ascended up into heaven, he told the apostles to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he then reaffirmed that same statement That same promise there in Acts chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, where Jesus said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. A familiar passage to, I think, all of us. And then we have in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived... And Pastor Tim walked us through the details of the Jewish feast several weeks ago, and in particular, this feast of weeks or this feast of harvest. And for this feast, Jerusalem was filled with thousands of Jews from all over the world who spoke different languages. They were in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. The apostles, along with 120 other believers, were gathered in an upper room as Jesus had instructed them to go and to wait for the coming of the Spirit. And this was 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles and all of the other believers that were gathered together and and now to indwell those believers. And this was the day that marked the beginning when the church was first planted. Amazing. And several amazing wonders happened when the Holy Spirit came, if you're familiar with Acts chapter 1. When the Holy Spirit came, those who were gathered in the upper room, they heard a noise like a violent rushing wind. They saw tongues as of fire resting on each one of them. 
And these are all signs of God's unique presence and his power. Nothing unusual because we see that in the Old Testament over and over again. Well, it appears that once this happened to the, those that were gathered in the upper room, they moved from where they were in that, in that place, from the upper room, into the streets of Jerusalem that was filled with thousands and thousands of Jews who were there to celebrate this feast. And as they moved from the upper room throughout the city, they began witnessing to those that they came across in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, it says there, what they did is as they traveled through the city sharing they were sharing about the mighty works of God. And they were doing this in the native tongues of those foreign languages, of those people that were in the city, the Jews that they came across from the other countries. And certainly an amazing event was taking place. But interesting that the response to the phenomena was, was mixed, as I think you could probably imagine, by those that were there that day. As the apostles and others were going around and they were sharing about the great, the great mighty works of Jesus Christ. Um, they heard the apostles speaking in these unknown languages, these foreign languages to different people. And it could be that they came across one person, found out what their native language was, and then began to speak to them about, about the mighty works of God in that language. And then maybe as they came across somebody else, they spoke in a different language there. We don't know, but they were speaking those known languages. And those who didn't know those languages couldn't understand what was going on. And the response to this phenomenon was mixed by those that were there that day. Some were, I think, obviously naturally confused, and others were a bit curious. And then there were those who denied that this had anything to do with God. And what they were doing is they were mocking and making fun of the Christians because of what they were seeing and what they were hearing. I mean, really, when you stop to think about it, not uncommon today when we're living our lives for Jesus Christ. And we're taking a stand for Jesus Christ and we're on fire for Jesus Christ and we're making much of Jesus Christ. There are people who might be curious, some people who are just no, not quite sure, but then others who may be mocking and making fun of us because we're living our lives for Jesus Christ. Not uncommon. But in the midst of all of this happening in the city of Jerusalem filled with thousands of Jews from all over the world, Peter seizes the moment. He's sensitive to the moment in time. And what he does is he gathers the crowd of people. How he does it, I don't know. But he gathers them some way. And he probably gathers them in the temple area where he stands to address the audience. He gets their attention. And what he does there is he boldly begins to share of Jesus Christ. And so how do we go about sharing boldly of our faith? Well, we're going to see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through the majority of the passage. So how do we go up sharing boldly of our faith? The first point. Know the word and share its accuracy. Know the word, share its accuracy. Look at verse 14 of, uh, of Acts chapter 2. We read there and it says, But Peter, in the midst of what was going on, with the confusion that was happening, he said, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now let me just pause there for a moment. It was just 53 days earlier, just 53 days earlier, that Peter had three times declared publicly when he was confronted about knowing and being a follower of Jesus Christ, said these words, I don't know the Lord. I am not one of the twelve. What an incredible statement. Just 53 days earlier, and here he is now, ready to preach to thousands. 
standing before the thousands to share boldly of his trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I don't know about you, but I can take great comfort, and I hope you can too, in knowing that even though my attitude and my actions at times has been a denial of my relationship with Jesus Christ, as the world might see my life, that my failures, my shortcomings are never final. And that my witness for Jesus Christ can continue as we seek forgiveness and we get restored. It can continue. And here was Peter. Because you know the accuracy and the veracity of the word of God and the life of Jesus Christ is true no matter the mouthpiece. And that was true of Peter. And he goes on to say in verses 15 and 16, notice there what he says. He says, for these men are not drunk, as you would suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. I think Peter here kind of understands the situation, sensitive to the circumstances, trying to explain what's going on, and he begins the sermon with, a, I think, a, maybe a touch of humor. I, I mean, there were some accusing and mocking the believers who spoke in these tongues, these foreign languages of being drunk, Okay. But he instead says, in effect, man, it's only the third hour. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. No one would be drunk this early in the day. And if they were, they'd probably still be sleeping it off someplace. And so Peter goes, it's not that. And Peter's explanation of what was taking place was very simple. He said, this, what you've seen, what you've heard, what you have been experiencing as you have observed what's going on, This was really the fulfillment of a prophecy that the prophet Joel had written some eight centuries earlier. And we have that prophecy written for us in verses 17 through 21. Notice there. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass, I love this, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone. Now, interesting, as you think through that, and if you're familiar with what had taken place there on the day of Pentecost, there were some things that, that, that Peter's reading that obviously didn't happen. We have no recording of that. And the thing that I think we need to understand here is that Peter never said that Pentecost and what had happened that took place that day marked the complete fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Only that the coming of the Holy Spirit, and this is important, only that the coming of the Holy Spirit was the beginning of that prophecy. Much yet to be fulfilled. The complete fulfillment is going to come at the end of the age in the events associated with Christ's second coming in glory when he sets up his kingdom. Peter had no idea of the timeline of Joel's prophecy and that it would span some 2,000 years, kind of like bookends, The second coming of Christ is here, the day of Pentecost here, and at some point in time, we're here. Joel had no idea that the prophecy would still yet be unfulfilled for some 2,000 years, nor do we. 
But what we need to take away from this without dissecting the prophecy of Joel, because that's not our purpose here this morning, is that first, Peter knew the scriptures. He knew them well. He was able to accurately apply the scriptures to what was happening that day. I don't think he had a bound text of the, of the books of the Old Testament in his back pocket. I don't think he unrolled a scroll that morning so he could read the prophecy. He knew and he recited it from memory. But secondly, he ran the experience of what he and the others had gone through and then what was happening that day through the filter of the Word of God. And that's so important for us. That's how we must approach life and all of the experiences that we may have as we're walking with Jesus Christ. We need to know the Word and run those experiences through the Word. And that's what Peter was doing. It's also true when it comes to a sharing of our faith with others. Sharing our faith in Jesus Christ with other, others. I remember... As a very young believer, I got associated with the Jesus People Movement back in the early 70s. Anybody familiar with that? I can't be that old or the only one. I got associated with a group that was called the Fishnet. They met in an elementary school, and I was invited to this. I was curious about it, and so as a very young believer, I was questioning my faith and seeking lots of answers. And I was looking for answers as a very young believer, and there were a number of well-intentioned people there who were sharing their personal experiences. They were sharing their thoughts and their feelings about coming to Christ and what should be experienced as a believer. But their answers weren't very satisfying. In fact, they were very disconcerting and a bit confusing because they weren't using the Bibles to explain anything. It wasn't until somebody sat me down and opened their Bible and walked me through the Scriptures that I gained an accurate understanding of what took place when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and how I should be living my life for Jesus and what I should be experiencing as a follower of his. Let me give you several key passages of Scripture so that you can share the word and share its truth about how one can come to faith in Jesus Christ. You might want to write these down. So here are what we would say the top four passages we need to be able to point to as we share our faith with others. And the first passage of Scripture is Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all, that includes everyone, excludes no one. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. If you've been around here for any length of time, I think you've understood or heard us talk a little bit about what it means to fall short. It's a, it's a sports term. It's an archery term. And the idea here of falling short is here is the archer who has his bow and arrow and he pulls the bow back with the arrow and he shoots at the target and he doesn't go to the right or the left or over the target, he falls short of the target. Doesn't even come close to the target. In our, in our day we could talk about an air ball, one that just falls short. It doesn't bounce off the rim, it doesn't come close, it doesn't go over the backboard, but it just falls short. And that's what Paul was saying in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Every single one of us. And then the next verse would be Romans 6.23. Where Paul says, for the wages of sin or the result of falling short is death because of our sin. 
But, transition, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God. And then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, let me stop there. What is it? What is grace? Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Grace is not ours to earn. It is God's gift to give to us. So important. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It isn't something that we ourselves can do, but it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And what I love about this is that this gift, this gift of eternal life, this gift of salvation, this gift of sins forgiven, the hope of heaven, this gift was not meant to be kept to ourselves, but to be shared. I mean, the reality of a gift is that if you work for it, if you can work for it, then it's no longer a gift, right? It's something that is owed to you. And if we could work our way into God's heaven by doing certain things, then God would then be obligated to give us something because we've worked for it, and that would put God in this position of being a debtor to us. He's never going to be a debtor to us. His gift of eternal life, sins forgiven, hope of heaven, is a free gift made available. I mean, we're coming up to Christmas time here, and I'm sure many of us are thinking about putting presents under the Christmas tree, and as we put those presents under the tree, we put a name tag on it, and the reality is the gift is available to all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reality is, in order for that gift to be experienced, in order for that gift to be enjoyed, the gift has to be grabbed hold of, unwrapped, and experienced. But it's a gift, and it's available. It's available to all. And then Romans 10, 9 and 10. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth. Because how do we deal with all of this? How do we experience this new life? How do we experience this this grace that God has available for us? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. It's that simple. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. That's what it takes. It's all about the ABCs. It's all about admitting that we are separated because of our sins. It's all about believing in Jesus Christ that he was an historical figure who lived some 2,000 years ago, who claimed to be God, who did miraculous events, and to even believe that, yeah, okay, maybe he did rise from the dead. But there's another step that needs to be taken where you confess him as your Lord, your Savior. You surrender your life to him. You say, I'm giving up, Lord, and my life is yours, and I am going to follow you. And when it comes to this, it's, it isn't hard. It's as simple as the ABCs. God never intended the gift to be difficult to obtain. So know the word. Share its accuracy. But second, know the Lord and share his greatness. Know the Lord and share his greatness. So in the midst of a crowd of thousands, as Peter's speaking, maybe five to 6,000 people, Peter moves from explaining the experience of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he wastes no time in coming to the point. And he shares pointedly, he shares boldly, that it's all about Jesus Christ. 
It's not. It's not about the events of Pentecost. It is not about the experience that they had. But Jesus Christ is the subject. Jesus Christ is the theme. Jesus Christ is the focus of Peter's sermon. And here we go in verses 22 to 24. It is kind of bizarre when when I'm preaching a sermon about a sermon, but here we go. Verses 22 to 24. Peter continues here and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So here we go. A good Jew, and there were Jews that were gathered that day. A good Jew was waiting for the day when the Messiah would come. And Peter explains that Jesus was their Messiah. And that Jesus was proven by God to be the Messiah by showing several proofs of Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth who, who was both Lord and Christ and who was their Messiah. He does this first by the many miracles and wonders and signs that Jesus performed. He's trying to draw the audience's attention to everything that Jesus had done. I mean, even those who didn't understand who Jesus was, who were seeking information about who Jesus was, had to admit to the fact that Jesus Christ did many miracles. It was Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night inquiring about who this, who this person is, what this born-again experience is all about. He wasn't convinced of that. And it was Nicodemus who made this statement. He said, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And as Peter goes on to explain by the many proofs, he also, I think, is alluding to the fact that there were even unbelieving Jews who were probably in that audience that day, who were the enemies of Jesus Christ, who were there that could confirm the miracles and the wonders that Jesus did. I mean, in John chapter 11, verse 47, we read there that the chief priests and the Pharisees, who were enemies gathered the council together and they said this about Jesus. What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs, many miracles. And what Peter was saying that day to those that were there is that, that many of you heard and may have even seen firsthand the miracles that Jesus performed. And so Peter is here trying to build his case and allow the Holy Spirit to use his words to impact hearts and lives. And then he gives another proof of Jesus as Lord in Christ, and that was his crucifixion and his resurrection. You know, if Jesus had such a powerful ministry, why was he put to death? Well, Peter goes on to explain that. He said, for the Jews, I mean, this, this was not how they expected their Messiah to come. I mean, what the Jews were thinking about, what the Jews were looking for, was a ruling earthly king, the Lion of Judah that would overthrow the Roman government and set up his kingdom on earth. They didn't realize that their Messiah, as prophesied also in the Old Testament, was to come first as a servant, a lamb to be sacrificed. Isaiah 53. But Peter explains in verse 23 that Jesus' death on the cross was how? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. How did God know? 
How did he foreknow that this was going to happen? Because he planned it. He knew it. You see, Jesus didn't die because of a mistake on his part, because things got out of control, but because his death was the Father's plan from the very beginning of time. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so without violating the will of the lawless men, the evil men that put Jesus Christ to death on the cross, God used them to accomplish his eternal purpose and plan. But the cross, the cross, the cross was not the end of the story. Verse 24, God raised him up. God had a definite plan. And so Peter quotes Psalm 16, 8 to 11, and Psalm 110, verse 1, to show some of the Old Testament predictions of the resurrection. Notice verses 25 through 35. We have written there. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he, would set, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured out. This, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter explains that David was not writing about himself because David had died, was buried, his tomb was there, his remains were still in the tomb. But, but Jesus... Jesus' body had not been left to decay in a tomb, but Jesus had been, in fact, been raised from the dead, resurrected and glorified. You see, Jesus' execution had been carried out in public with hundreds, maybe even thousands of people as eyewitnesses to his death. And there was a tomb just a short distance from where they were and Jesus had been placed in, but... but. That tomb was now empty. That tomb was available for anyone to go and see. And it was Peter and the other apostles along with hundreds of others that had seen Jesus alive after the resurrection. You see, our faith rests on the reality of an empty tomb. Of a resurrected Savior. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Not on the fact that Jesus was a good moral teacher. Not on the fact that he did great wonders. 
Not on the fact that he, he did great miracles. Not on the fact that he claimed to be God. Because there have been hundreds of religious leaders throughout history who have done all those things. But it was only Jesus. Only Jesus who claimed that he would be raised from the dead and it would happen in three days. You might want to write these verses down because people say, really, Jesus actually said that? Matthew 12, 39 to 40. Matthew 12, 39 to 40. Matthew 16, 21. John 10, 17 and 18. You can look at those verses later. You see, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 to 17, he said, if Christ is not been raised from the dead, then he says, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It is futile and we are then still in our sins. What a powerful passage there because what, what Paul is essentially saying that if Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, then this stuff that we're doing here this morning, the ministries that we have going on, that it's silly. It's really stupid for us to be doing this kind of stuff. And we're the most deceived, he says. It's futile. It's vain. But Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Can we get an amen to that? He's raised and alive today. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. And then Peter makes this very bold statement in verse 36. He says there, Let the house of Israel therefore know, you Jews, know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, that is your Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the Holy Spirit is working powerfully in hearts and lives at this moment in time. And so know the word and share its accuracy. Know the Lord and share his greatness. And the third point, know the people and share the steps they need to take to be saved. Verse 37. The Holy Spirit's working in hearts and lives. Peter goes on and he says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Wow. Wow. Wouldn't that be awesome if every time we shared our faith with, <laughs> of Christ with others, that that would be the response. What shall we do? What shall we do? God's word was being proclaimed. The Holy Spirit was pressing in on many that were there, but they became aware and convicted of their sins, and they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. God was bringing deep conviction into their lives, into their hearts. Those that were spiritually blind were now beginning to see, and many in the crowd came to the realization that they had been the enemies of their own Messiah. Man, what a wake-up call. What a reality check. And they became aware of their own sin, and they asked, what shall we do? And then here's verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter's answer to their question was, repent. The word repent. It means to turn, 
and go in the opposite direction. Turning 180 degrees, it's to have a change in your thinking and in your actions. One Bible commentator said it this way, the word repent indicates a change of direction in a person's life, and I love this, rather than simply a mental change of attitude or a feeling of remorse. It signifies a turning away from a sinful and godless way of life. It's a 180 degree turn. You're moving this direction and then you turn and you're now moving in this direction. And I love the fact that the idea here is it's more than just a feeling of remorse, a feeling of guilt, a feeling of sorrow for sins. The Bible talks about a worldly sorrow that doesn't really lead to change, but there's a godly sorrow a repentance that does result in change. And Peter was calling those there that day to not only change their minds about who Jesus was, he was their Messiah, the risen Lord, but he's also calling them to live differently, live life with, with a different purpose, live life with different values, live the kind of life Jesus was calling his followers to. And so let me ask you, how are you doing at that? How are you doing at that? You're living with a purpose that is making much of Jesus Christ? Is he reigning supreme in your life? Are you putting his values above your values? You're putting his desires and wants above your desires and wants? How are you doing at that? Well, Peter went on to say to those that were there that day, and be baptized every one of you. And when Peter called those to be baptized, it was a call to take a step of obedience that identified them publicly with Jesus Christ and with a community of other believers that were there. It was one of the marks of a genuine disciple, and it was a strong statement of one's faith. A number of Bible scholars have said that an unbaptized believer was really foreign to the early church. The question that we ask as we look at this verse is what relationship does baptism have with the forgiveness of sins and salvation? Let me answer it in this way. It all has to fall upon the preposition, how the preposition for is used, but also the entirety of Scripture. The answer is the way the preposition is used. You know, the, the phrase, for the forgiveness of your sins, as it's used in this, as it's translated here in this verse. You see, in the Greek language, the preposition can have one of two meanings, and this is important. It can be translated for the purpose of or because of. And it should be determined by the context and other passages of Scripture. And so, the second usage is really the preferred, baptized because of the forgiveness of sins, not be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, all of Scripture, the rest of Scripture, never talks about being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, water baptism is the follow-up to faith and trust in Jesus Christ because of a genuine repentance and having experienced the forgiveness of sins, as so many other passages of Scripture clearly indicate. And so hopefully we've cleared that up, at least at this point. You see, baptism, water baptism, does not add anything to your salvation. It is simply a response, an obedient response. Baptism is a step that a person takes that is the result of their sins being forgiven, their life being transformed in the desire to be obedient and to go public about their love for Jesus Christ. That's what our baptism services are all about around here. You see, salvation, it is by grace alone. 
Not grace plus, but grace alone. And when someone is saved, the Holy Spirit is given as a part of God's free gift of salvation. And when you are saved, the Holy Spirit does a number of things in you and for you. He baptizes us. He fills us. He sanctifies us. He's our comforter. He is our helper. He intercedes for us. He guides us. He gives us spiritual gifts. He gives us power to live to make much of Jesus Christ. And these were all works. These are all works that the Holy Spirit is doing since the day of Pentecost in the hearts and lives of those who trust Jesus Christ. Well, as Peter goes on to explain, the the gift of salvation is not only for the Jews. I mean, he was speaking to his audience. He knew the audience. But he says also in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And as Peter quoted earlier from the prophet Joel in verse 21, and I love this, that he said, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. God is calling, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what's the result? Look at verses 40 and 41. And with many other words, would love to have had that recorded for us, but we don't. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. That would be quite an incredible baptism service. And there were added that day 3,000 souls. 3,000. Truly an amazing work of God in the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. God has... God was beginning a remarkable work as the church is launched and the Holy Spirit is being poured out into the lives of those who are being saved. And their faith became contagious. And here we are today, some 2,000 years later, and God is still calling people to himself. Faith is still contagious and lives are being transformed And we have many stories, amazing stories of transformation. Growing up, our family attended church and it was there at the age of 13 that someone shared with me the steps that I needed to take to be saved. And when I heard the good news of Jesus Christ, I confessed and trusted him as my personal savior. My younger brother, Kurt, even though he heard the exact same message growing up, that I heard. He never said that he ever trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior, nor did his life ever reflect that he had trusted Christ. But then about a year ago, he was diagnosed with acute lymphocytic leukemia and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and ended up at Mayo Clinic for a series of treatments. While he was there, I made several trips to Mayo Clinic. Those visits were always bathed in prayer, asking God for the opportunity to share the gospel with him. My first visit, I remember walking the hallways with Kurt and I asked him, I said, have you thought about eternity if this cancer stuff isn't cured? He really didn't say much of anything, but I could tell that he was thinking about it. In each visit I made, I was able to share a little bit more about Christ and what it meant to have a personal relationship with him. You see, even as a pastor, um, it was hard to talk to my brother about spiritual things about the steps that he needed to take to be saved because 
as brothers growing up, even though I was claiming to be a follower of Christ, he, sh- he saw all my inconsistencies, saw all of my shortcomings, knew all of my faults, even though I was declaring myself a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you know what I'm talking about when it comes to sharing Christ with family? It's not easy. The other thing about my brother Kurt is that he was a very successful businessman back in Detroit. He had a great marriage. Two amazing boys. Everything was great for him from a worldly perspective. It was hard to discuss his need for Jesus Christ when he had every material thing he ever wanted. But as his cancer progressed and as he went through all of his treatments, we would talk regularly and text back and forth, and I would often share scripture passages with him and share how my faith in Jesus Christ sustained me through my own cancer treatments. We then got a phone call from his wife Peggy on Thursday, September 27th, saying that they have stopped all treatments and have called in hospice. It's an ominous sort of thing to hear. And so then a couple days later on Sunday, September 30th, Becky and I drove to Detroit and my prayer as we were driving to Michigan, my heart's cry was, Lord, Lord, please give me the opportunity. Give me the opportunity to share more of you with Kurt. Please do something. I don't want to be a jerk in this. I don't want to beat him over the head with the Bible, but Lord, please give me an opportunity. Do something. So we got to their house Walked in, I was shocked to see how in such a short period of time the cancer had ravaged him physically. He looked so frail, so weak. We hugged, we cried, and his first words to me were, I want you to know, I've trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. God had already done a great work. And he said, pray with me. He said, pray with me. Well, then the next morning, the hospice nurse sat with us and she said that Kurt had moved into the active stage of dying. She also said that he was so much more at peace now and and there was a calmness that she said she hadn't seen the days before. She said it was as if he needed to finish something up, but she didn't know what it was. And I'm convinced that he was waiting to tell me that he had committed his life to Jesus Christ. When we left that morning, I read the 23rd Psalm to him. We prayed, we hugged, we cried, and I said, I love you. This is not goodbye but I'll see you later. He smiled, and he said, I know, I know. Then on Tuesday, October 2nd, at 6.45 a.m., my brother was ushered into God's presence. No more chemo, no more cancer. He was free, and he was home. Share God's greatness Share of God's goodness. Share boldly, 
Share confidently and share lovingly of your faith in Jesus Christ because, friends, it is an eternal life and death matter for others. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So who do you need to begin sharing your faith with? Is it a family member? Is it a friend? Is it a co-worker? Is it a neighbor? Write the name down. Commit to pray for that person or those persons. Who is it that you need to begin to share this eternal gift of hope, this eternal life available, a gift that was intended to be given and never kept to ourselves? You see, the best witness is your life on fire for Jesus Christ, but also the verbal witness with the word of God that clearly communicates the steps that someone needs to take to be saved. Share the gift. Don't keep it to yourself.